Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Will Self, whose new novel, Phone, completes a trilogy that he began with Umbrella. Was that four years ago? Five years ago? I, actually began the, I probably began the novel six or seven years ago. It was published about five years ago. Yeah, so, so well, could you start by, I mean, that's the stupidest question of all, but what is Phone about? Phone is the sort of culmination of this trilogy of novels, all of which are about the relationship between technology, human psychopathology at both the individual and the collective level, and warfare. So each novel takes a mode of production, a pathology, and a war, and investigates through the lives and the consciousnesses of a group of characters the interpenetration of these realms. I think one of the things that people find a little tricky with the books is that, you know, I'm not a philosophical dualist, so they're not books about X causes Y or Y causes X, mind causes body, body causes mind. They're kind of monist books, which is why they have this kind of stream of consciousness form, this kind of long, uninterrupted line. When we get to Phone, the third volume of the trilogy, having dealt with the First and Second World Wars in the first two, we're up to the Iraq War as the conflict. We're up to autism and Alzheimer's as the pathologies we're investigating. And we're up to what I call bidirectional digital media, the whole kind of complex of the internet and the web as a mode of production. So I'm investigating the linkages of all of these through a quartet of really rather disparate characters. Yeah. And one of them who's been with you for something like 25 years is Zach Busner, your sort of anti-psychiatrist who first appeared in The Quantity Theory of Insanity. Yeah, I mean, I must have written his name, in fact, for the first time nearly 30 years ago, in about 1989, I think. So, So he's... I always think that, you know, executives, when they move to jobs, take little desk toys with them, like kind of Newton's cradles. And writers can take characters. You, you move. He's been in many of my narratives, stories, novels. And in this trilogy of novels, we go inside his head. And in this final novel, he is beginning to suffer from, from Alzheimer's. So his, the texture of his mind, the kind of fabric of it is beginning to fray. There's a lot of show through. <laughs> Why is Busner stuck with you, do you think, so so much? I mean, he's, he is like this kind of, well, to, say, a gonk. Yeah, <laughs> well, to borrow a phrase from chemistry of all things he's like a partial agonist you know he both confirms my own views and both by example and by his own rhetoric rejects them so I find him a kind of useful character particularly to explore the effect of the psi professions and psychoanalytic theory and and psychiatric practice on our societies and also I'm afraid to say Particularly, I've come to, to really love him over the years. I actually like him. I think he's a, decent, he's a good example to me of how, you know, many, many Christians are really, really incredibly decent people, despite their faith. And, you know, many, many political people, political zealots, are, are very, very decent and moral, despite their ideology. And, and Busner is a very, very good doctor, despite being a psychiatrist, in my view. <laughs> I, wonder if, I mean, part of the thing that obviously... Busner goes through your work, you do have this sort of absolutely enduring interest in psychosis. Where does that come from? Why is that this sort of preoccupation that from your first book to the well, most I think, recent? I think, you know, love is all around, Sam. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think psychosis is bigger than sanity. 
I think that psychosis, any direction you go in human thought, whether it's through the derangement of senses, the intensity of, of thought about transcendent matters, whether they be philosophic or spiritual, the dissolution of the body, any way you push the human subject, he or she runs up against psychosis very quickly. Uh, and I think I've always felt, and I felt it from a very, very early age because I kind of had mental health problems myself as a young man, and ended up, you know, as an outpatient on psychiatric wards in London and seeing a lot of mental distress and mental illness very close up when I was young. You know, I've never really escaped that, that intimation that sanity is actually a very fragile thing. It's not a strong thing at all. I mean, in terms of technique, these novels, you know, as you said, there's this sort of stream of consciousness thing, there's no paragraph breaks, and at least the first two, I think, wrap round sentences, don't they? Mm. Mm. This last one obviously ends with just the word death. <laughs> yeah, but the whole trilogy begins along, and the last word of it, after 1,200 pages, is death. Yeah. So it does loop. There's a colophon there as well okay. in the overall <laughs> shape. Right round. But there's a sense for those of us who kind of watched your career that Umbrella marked some sort of quite decisive break, that you had been writing these novels, which, you know, I mean, some of them felt quite like, to me, a sort of exploded short stories mm. you know they, they would would take off from a conceit and, mm. you know, and then suddenly there was this dense block of 400 pages of really old school high modernism what happened there where did you kind of um that's I, I absolutely accept that the early novels are largely kind of what ifs they're kind of conceits that and, and often the plots are shaggy dog stories of one kind i have to say people love them and still read them so yeah, you know me too. maybe they were doing something Right. It wasn't a choice, the, the modernist turn at all. It came on me. There was a kind of bridge book I wrote in the mid-noughties called Walking to Hollywood, which start, you know, starts to disintegrate the formal break between the diegetic and the mimetic function in the novel, starts to decenter the narrative voice, starts to play with fiction and metafiction to some extent. I wish I... I don't wish I'd never gone there, but, you know, I went there... And then I just started being unable to write. So I've always loved J.G. Ballard's introduction to the 1973 French edition of his novel Crash, in which he says, you know, who is this omniscient narrator that we so unquestionably accept in text? You know, in, you know, Ballard talks about the death of affect and the kind of post-lapsarian world of the 20th century, the dethroning of this omnipotent, really godlike and I would say a function of Christian ideology narrator and that started you know finally actually in my 40s I thought I can no longer write sentences like he went to the pub who knows he went to the pub why did he go to the pub in the past is he still in the pub now you know my life's always in the present it really is and there's no narrator and I'm not quite sure what's going on and I think novels present themselves so all of which is by way of saying, like a lot of modernists, I think that these forms are more inherently naturalistic than traditional novel forms. Then there's the, the added plus and the overplus. You know, Ulysses itself is a profound response to the coming of film. It's, you know, its transitions are like film montages. Uh, Joyce uses and adapts a lot of film editing techniques for it. And it's a response to the impossibility of a defined and encapsulated linear narrative anymore. Now, I understand why people retreated from that. Not all novels after Ulysses were written in that mode. But it seems to me, with, particularly with the coming of bi-directional digital technology, that we have another assault 
on the idea of the novel as an enclosed form, internally self-referential, relating to a canon. You know, when so many people now read text in the form essentially of news threads, of screeds that run along screens, it seems to me that the novel needs to at least reflect... What the way in which these different mm. texts erupt into the consciousness. Mm. I don't know where you come across Gabriel Joseph Pavicki's book, mm-hmm. you know, Whatever Happened to Modernism, which was mm-hmm. quite striking because it seemed to argue, actually, we think there's postmodernism and various other forms that go on, but actually this is almost where form ends, you know, modernism is it, you can't go beyond it. I wouldn't agree, well, I would agree with that in terms of the novel, and that's because I think what people don't understand is that the, the novel is a form that is dependent on a technological, on a material base, and that's the physical codex. You know, if you think about novels, they need to be internally self-referential, because actually most people don't go up to get up to consult a dictionary or an encyclopedia in order to be filled in. Back to Ulysses. Ulysses already broke that rule, you know. People always say, oh, you know, I can't get on with Ulysses. I'm not surprised. You can't actually understand Ulysses unless you were in Dublin on the 16th of June 1904 and knew a great deal about it. You have to read the text with a concordance of allusions, go back to it. It's a text that needs to be decoded in that way. And I think Joyce, again, was pointing the way to a technological and mediatized realm in which the dominant forms were not going to be in print. They just weren't going to be in this enclosed form. When you actually sit down to write a book as echo. I mean, and one of your kind of techniques, it seems to me, in the book is a sort of system of associative logic or internal rhyme or, you know, everything seems to rhyme with everything else. Are those things that you kind of pick up by happenstance as you're writing it? Or do you have a kind of very complex map of the themes and the subjects and where the narrative's going? I, for the first two books, I mean, I take exhaustive notes and I divide the notes up. So I have, you know, I have notebooks that are just metaphors. I have notebooks that are just idiolects of characters. I have notebooks that are factoids about this, that or the other, descriptions of characters, exhaustively. And I would say in, with Umbrella and Phone, I probably, in each case, used about 25 or 30% of the material I'd put together. And in Phone, I used very little. I researched it exhaustively. I mean, apart from the hard factual stuff I needed, particularly in the Iraq sections. But actually, a lot of it did come as I was writing. There was a sense, once I got into writing phone, that the long line, as I call it, had come to dominate. And that, and that it carried with it an aleatoric imperative, that the novel had to respond to my engagement with the quotidian as I was writing it. And, and hopefully that's given it a different kind of impetus to the other two. It does feel... And I mean, the opening section's pretty revolutive, but it, it feels actually slightly looser limbed mm. than certainly Umbrella, which is very impacted. And mm. kind of Tightly calibrated. And, you know, yes, um, I hope it is a little bit looser. It's longer. It's another 200 pages longer. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but I, I did really, Sam, sit down at the beginning of last year and write it. You also put, which I don't think appears in any of the previous novels, Tony Blair into it as TB. Is that the first time you've had a real person? And David Davis. I mean, David Davis <laughs> in there. I think James Blunt's there slightly off. James the Blunt's well, vaguely he? in there. Yeah. yeah, there's quite a few real people. There's quite a few real spooks. Oh, do you know some spooks? Do you? Um, Let's say there's one, there's one character. Put who's it this a way: I have my sources. Yeah, I put, I, put, I put Blair in. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an old-school Blair hater. I wrote my first anti-Blair piece in, in 1995 for The Independent. So you hated him before everyone else jumped Yes, in I hated him when he was Shadow Home Secretary. 
I'm really avant la lettre when it comes to hating Tony Blair. So I, d- I really didn't feel that <laughs> it was in any sense gratuitous to carry on hating him the year that Chilcott came out and, you know, established incontrovertibly what many of us had been saying ever since the Iraq debacle. Now, the other side of the story, which obviously, you know, as you say, Iraq feeds into it, you've got Wasner and his his world, and there's also, which runs through the, the trilogy, this family of the Daths, or Deaths, how do you pronounce it? Well, they, they've, they've Frenchified their name to Daath, but in fact they should call themselves Death, like most of the Daaths in this country. You know, it's like people are always saying, oh, well, my family came over with the Normans. I mean, those Normans must have been on a kind of vast P&O ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it is, it's, it's Frenchified to Daath. Is it, I mean, do you see it as a sort of family saga? Because there are sort of echoes and, you know, you've got two deaths who seem to have eidetic memories, which obviously is something mm. that's a preoccupation of yours since my idea of fun. Mm. Um, well, my family, the, the, the deaths are based on the selves. My grandfather was a savant. My nephew's a savant. I mean, it's in my family. So I'm used to being around people who really do say things like, did you walk here from Clapham? Your pace is 32 inches. I calculate you took 1,983 paces. I mean, they really do do stuff like that. So, yeah, and my grandfather, who's really the pivotal de Ath, was really was, did run the Woolwich Arsenal in the First War and was Beaverbrook's PPS in the Second War and ran the electricity board. This in the is, 50s. well, what was his name? Like, the cell. He's, well, Selbert. my grandfather was called uh, Sir Albert Henry Self, but he's, I've just changed him to de Ath. So, yeah, it is in, in part an investigation of my family and aspects of my family. Uh, and something I heard, I remember you saying that you didn't realise this was going to be a trilogy until you finished Umbrella, is that right? Mm, that's right. I mean, I, was, I, was, I found myself after Umbrella thinking, uh, and I was incredibly surprised by the, the favourable reception the novel got. As you can imagine, when you're writing something like that, you think you, you, you really may have screwed the pooch when it comes to... <laughs> and indeed, my, my then editor's response to the text when I delivered it was lukewarm at best. Yeah, I, did, I heard from him afterwards that it was a little bit... Has yeah, he, well, I mean... Has I he gone off the reservation? And then, <laughs> well, I think, you know, he just... Publishers have a kind of commercial hat on. They can't really avoid that. Then, you know, after I finished Umbrella and I was casting around for something to write, I normally have the next couple of books in mind already, and I didn't, I think because of this modernist turn. And then the other two just downloaded into my mind. I just thought, yeah, you've done the first war, got to do the second war in Iraq. It's got to be carried on. Something that, curious, because Bussner obviously goes through all the work, do you think of your fictions as all being set in the same universe? Yes, Sort of, with kind of more antic and shaggy dog corners to it and other kinds of corners to it. Yeah, that starts with The Quantity Theory of Insanity, my first book in 91, which is a a story cycle, a series of interlinked narratives in which characters, minor characters, become major characters in other stories. And occasionally, you know, like Busner, for example, will be glanced on a television set in another story, you know. And, And this is to do with, again, my problem with conventional literary naturalism which which is there simmering from the very beginning of my career and right from the beginning I felt that that uh, the way in fiction that fiction sets itself up in a one-to-one correspondence with reality is is an ideological trope it's just clearly not the case so what's going on there various forms of ideology how do we get around to it well we accept that truth really in fiction lies in a correspondence between its parts and a coherence 
between its parts. I think we feel the veracity of a fictional world when we sense that it has that kind of internal coherence. It has to do with form rather than with yeah. whatever it's uh, describing. So that's what I set out to do, really, in terms of my kind of long-term project, is to create a kind of selfie world in that way. Also because it's great fun to play with it. I mean, you're a novelist yeah. yourself. You know that thing of kind of, it's the ultimate kind of playset, isn't it? Exactly. And is this, there's a faint hint towards the end of the novel. I mean, it's there is a shift about, I guess, three quarters of the way through where suddenly it goes into the conditional. Mm-hmm. And you're mm-hmm. glad you, you spotted know, that. One's not sure about what's actually, whether no, this is what's the happened. Last what's going pages, the last hundred pages. It's wholly conditional. Yeah. It's conditional. But there is a suggestion this is goodbye to Busna. Is yeah. it goodbye to Busna? I've been thinking that's a sort of collection because I so enjoyed his youth. You know, I knew he, he what, trained. Shaggy haired, laggy and. Yeah, well, well, even the earlier bit that's in phone where he's working at State Hospital in, in Carstairs in, in Lanarkshire, which is, you know, I knew he'd been there because it's mentioned in Umbrella and he studied at Harriet Watt in Edinburgh. But he's there in the early 60s and it's very kind of grim. It's the Scots Broadmoor. And it began making me think about a kind of Dr. Busner's casebook volume <laughs> of kind of early stories about him, which might be quite fun, but... I don't know that you know. There's any great appetite for that? Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Will Self, thank you very much. Thanks very much. <laughs>